Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Are you looking to build an independent practice that is fulfilling, impactful, and financially rewarding? Did you know that I run a business course that's designed to help you do exactly that without making all the mistakes I made along the way? Over 12 weeks, we take you through everything you need to know to set up a practice that lets you live your values. Through a combination of teaching from experts, legal templates to make sure your practice is covered, peer support and group coaching sessions, this is the place for anyone looking to get off the starting blocks in private practice. The course is always accessible in pre-recorded format and three times a year we run a live cohort. So what are you waiting for? Join us at psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash the psychology business school. The link's in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast. Today I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Fred Moss. Fred is a psychiatrist, author, speaker and transformational coach who has a really unique approach to mental health and I'm very keen to talk to you today Fred about how you developed your approach and how you're now taking that out to the world and helping people in lots of creative ways. Um, So shall we start at the beginning of your journey then? Sure that sounds great thanks for having me on the show I'm really eager and interested in uh, having this conversation so very beautiful. So I know that um, you're a psychiatrist. So when did you first realize that conventional psychiatric medicine wasn't working for you? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It was before I became a psychiatrist that I realized that. So um, it it goes like this. you know, I was kind of born to be a communicator that my family, I am told was in disarray on the day that I was born, there was a lot of chaos. And I was brought in to bring joy or a new reset to a family that uh, was really looking to to be rebuilt. And over the first several years of my life, I just became deeply enchanted and uh, amused with the whole idea of communication and connection uh, and, you know, human conversation to be at the heart of all healing. And throughout my early years, that's what I was hoping to do. Each time I graduated from elementary school or junior high or high school, I always thought that the next place I would go, I would learn how to be a communicator because it was so important to me to learn how to be a communicator. Unfortunately, and most of us know this, each time I went up the ladder of the conventional educational system, it actually got harder. There was less communication going on in junior high and then even less in high school and then even less in college, you know, instead, Uh, this very talkative and interested person, little Fred, um, you know, like all my teachers, there's no teacher who ever had me for a student that forgot that I was in their class. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I I knew how to, I knew how to uh, speak, you know, I was, uh, I was precocious and I liked telling jokes and I was fun and uh, pretty smart. And those were kind of things that I, I, I love, I loved speaking. So in college, uh, I I started and it was again, it wasn't going to work for me. So uh, I stopped doing college at the University of Michigan and started traveling around to find myself and finally decided that that wasn't working either tried college again. And you know what, I, I, I quit again, I actually dropped out of college for a second time. And when I came home, I uh, told my mother that I was not going to do college ever. That was it. I was done. And uh, we're going to find something else to do because I couldn't handle being muted and I couldn't handle the communication was wasn't being given the emphasis that it needed. So you felt like you were being muted at college. Can you say exactly. a bit more about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, basically it was sit down, listen to what I have to say, remember it word for word, and then regurgitate it in a few weeks. And if you do a real good job, we'll give you an A and pass you into the next section. It wasn't a matter of actually developing ideas and creating open conversation and listening to other people with their heart and soul at all. That wasn't what college is about. College is about really homogenizing our thoughts so that we could think a lot of what each other thinks. And the closer we get to what the teacher wants, uh, the more... uh, the more affirmation we get, and we get to move into the next level. Now, that's not true with every course, but it was true in in general with college, for sure. So I got a job uh, working as a uh, 
as a childcare worker. My mother got me an application. I got a job as a childcare worker in a state mental health facility. And, you know, I thought that that would be a temporary job to get enough dollars to buy myself a car and go, you know, learn about who I was again. That sounds like a big job, though. So because um, I think we have a different setup in the UK. So a childcare worker within a mental health facility. Yeah, that's right. This was a mental health facility. So I was, uh, you know, I was a it was a state psychiatric facility, actually, adolescents who were there for a long time. And they hired childcare workers, you know, and I was a I was I had a little few years of college by that time, a year and a half. And so they hired us, uh, hired me at, I don't know, $13 an hour or something like that to be with the kids uh, in afternoon shift and, you know, to help them settle in and then let, you know, take them to uh, through the evening and then into the, into putting them for their bedtime. And what I found there is that I was really communicating with these kids. And this is when I began to see that, oh, communication is something that works in both directions. And I really began to love communication again, you know, this idea that I could get paid to communicate and heal with my kids. Like, not only were they healing, but I was healing and really looking at them and looking at them for who they were. And not because they had some diagnosis or unfortunate history, but because they were just human beings who were a few years younger than me. The thing I didn't like about that was how psychiatry was actually, this is answering your question. The thing I didn't like about that job was how um, psychiatry was managing the kids. Like we would call the psychiatrist and we'd say something like Johnny's up too late or Sally got in a, a fight, or, you know, uh, maybe not Sally, Jimmy got in a fight with Tommy and the psychiatrist would come and have a couple seconds conversation with the patient and then write an order. And then we'd have to, you know, basically hold the kid down and give him medications uh, and take him out of his misery. And if he was silent for the next 12 or 24 hours, we would call that a success. Mm. And that was how I, you know, my, you know, that psychiatry is that we would medicate them and, 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 and move them into another atmosphere. And if that worked, we would call that a psychiatric success. I found that to be so intolerable, so heinous, so um, improper. Uh, my brother was already a psychiatrist. He's 14 years older than me. And so I, uh, I decided that I was going to go back to school and be a psychiatrist and really have it be that communication is the connection and not medication and not, uh, you know, not telling kids or, or anyone that they were wrong, actually getting people for who they were. Well, so that's what I did. I went back to school with the whole idea of eventually becoming a doctor, even with uh, 13 years of schooling in front of me, having already committed to not having any more college. There I was back in school again. Gosh, and that is uh, a mighty commitment, isn't it? 13 years in the college environment when you didn't really like that. That must have been a real passion driving you. I guess it was, I, you know, I didn't want to stay where I was. And I really knew I had an aptitude to make a difference in the world of connection. So that's what happened. I went in and I finished off my undergraduate career. I got, uh, you know, eventually got accepted to a great medical school, Northwestern University in Chicago. And, uh, and during that time, a medication called Prozac was introduced to the world. And Prozac really flipped everything for all of us. All of our psychiatrists here on this call, psychologists and therapists, Prozac is what really changed this world. Uh, some of you probably aren't old enough to know that, or you think you have some memory of it, but Wow. You know, everything that was communication for psychiatry switched in 1987 when Prozac was introduced, because now being unhappy or being miserable or um, <clears throat> having a difficult time was considered wrong. And in order to be right, you, you know, you, you had to correct a chemical imbalance, a biological chemical imbalance. So look at this, over the next few years, all of a sudden, I became an expert in the exact thing that I hated, which was that I knew how to medicate. And I got really, really, really good at psychopharmacology. I got really good at being a diagnostician. I stayed a psychiatrist, of course, it took me a long time to get there. But each and every day, my soul was sacrificing. Each and every day, I was actually telling people that they were wrong or bad for being, for feeling uh, upset, whether they were depressed or anxious or fearful or confused or aimless or having difficulty in social environments or not completing tasks on time, instead of really knowing what I knew, which is that all they were doing was being human in a very difficult world. That's all they were doing. 
there was nothing wrong with them inherently at all until I medicated them. And then when I medicated them, now there was something wrong with them. Until I gave them their diagnosis, now there was something wrong with them. When they began to believe that there was something wrong with them, and then I gave them medications that actually did disrupt the way they thought, now I was creating something wrong for them. And this just was a, wow, this was consistent and daily soul sacrifice. And I did this really, you know, at some version of it over the next, I don't know, 30 years, 40,000 patients later, uh, I had done, wow, right, uh, over 1000 patients a year measured, you know, uh, which is, you know, I entered charts in nursing homes and, uh, and homeless shelters and orphanages and three quarters houses and rehab units and partial hospitals and home visits and inpatients and outpatients and prisons and jails. I was in all over psychiatry, every single part of psychiatry that I can imagine over the last 30 years I've been part of. You were working really hard at something you really didn't believe in. Well, what I was doing is working to find a space for which I could be me and actually bring my healing skills. So it isn't so that I was working so hard. I was just traveling, looking so hard for a place where I could be honest with myself. Mm -hmm. So I have a resume and a CV, you know, CV that is beautiful. I've been all over this thing. I, my beautiful, my resume is fantastic. And what's, what's really interesting about that resume is because it's because I left so many jobs, you know, I left and then I got a new one. So I have this, I have jobs everywhere. And it was really just a matter, just in like in the early years of looking for a place where communication and connection could be respected for, as the heart of all healing. In 2006, I started taking people off of medicine. I just decided that I couldn't keep medicating people and have them, you know, come in shaking. And, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm like, no, no, you're not. You're not okay. And uh, what happens if we take you off medicine? And people got way better as soon as I started taking them off medicine. And then I I started doing that in a greater group of people. And indeed, almost everybody got way better when I started taking them off of medicine. And then I decided, well, it's not the medicine's fault. It's the fact that they think something's wrong with them. So I stopped diagnosing people too. I decided that I didn't need to diagnose anybody as, as being defective or deficient or afflicted. Not at all. All they were being was human. That's it. That's what they were being. And People love that, you know, of course they do. Like honest and total respect for who they are. Under no means, and I just want to make this very clear to the therapist, psychologist, or any of your listeners. Am I diminishing the very, very real experience of deep misery? Very real. This isn't like, get it out of your head. There's nothing wrong with you. This is like, keep it in your head. There's just nothing wrong with you. Like, I got it. It's miserable. I got it. It's really painful. I got it. It's intolerable. It's unspeakable. I got it. This is not diminishing that. This is actually emphasizing that. I just want you to know that if you're having those experiences, that's called human, your vision of your version of human. That is not called being sick or having something wrong with you. So that's when I began to be a healer instead of a doctor. When I started doing that, that's when I, again, began to bring my skills forward as to creating healing. Sorry, just to reflect on the fact that in 2006, that was still quite counter the culture around. Oh, it it is in 2022 as well. Yeah, I was going to say, because this is something that um, I feel very passionately about as well. I was really excited to to get your emails come on the podcast because... Um, moving away from diagnosis and towards, you know, understanding people's distress for what it is in context is something that I, you know, it drives me in in my work as well. Um, But even when I trained in 2012, that was, you know, not taken seriously in a lot of places. Oh, it's still not. And we still are fighting for it to this day. So to do it in 2006, to as a doctor say... I'm going to step out of this diagnostic system. That was exactly. really brave. How did that feel to do that? <laughs> it was, it, I get that it sounds like it was brave, but it was the only thing left to do. My soul was sacrificing every single day. It was either that or quit the, 
quit the field entirely, which I did try to do a number of times. Actually, it was like, I can't keep doing this shit at all ever. I'm done. I can't, I can't wake up every day and hit people up with medications that I know are making them bad or worse. I can't give people a diagnosis and honestly look them in the eye and tell me them that I know there's something wrong with them for being miserable. No, there's nothing wrong with you actually. Thank you for sharing, but being miserable is sometimes part of this thing we call life. And I wasn't really allowed to speak that uh, openly and get paid for it. So it was just a matter in 2006 of, you know, desperately looking for a place where I could bring communication back to my healing journey. Mm. And uh, over time, there's been a gradual increase in that. And that's, you know, fast forward uh, another 10 years, that's when I created the uh, Welcome to Humanity framework. Um, you know, Welcome to Humanity is what it sounds like, which is really embracing everything it means to be human. And I'm the founder of the Welcome to Humanity.net framework. And uh, that's when I started, you know, right, I wrote my book, Creative Eight, uh, Healing Through uh, Creativity and Self-Expression. And uh, your listeners can get that book by going to welcome to humanity.net forward slash creative or forward slash creative eight. One of them is the PDF and one of them is the audio book. I forget which one it is. I'll put both links in the show notes. Sure. So thank you. And, you know, the creativity aspect was that I realized that if we were being creative, art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening, those are the eight. If we were being creative, then during the time that we were being creative, our discomfort, if you will, our uneasiness, our dis-ease was uh, alleviated while, during, while being creative. Now, not like, you know, if you go to a museum, that's art, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually creating art, you know, actually painting or drawing or embroidering or whatever you, you want to do. Uh, same thing with dancing and music and singing. If you're creating during those times, all the things that led you into thinking that life was miserable go away while you're creating. So paying attention to that, the creative eight was just a way to inject a, sort of a new kind of therapy, like take three minutes a day and apply some degree of creativity to your life for just a minute at a time, draw for a minute, sing for a minute, dance for a minute. And people really had some amazing results because they got to see that it's a variable. It's not part of them that's something wrong with them. Even if for three minutes a day, if you can alleviate whatever pain and suffering they were having by not being heard, because that's really what the pain and suffering is. The pain and suffering is that our real souls, our real selves are not being heard. And each of us just want more than anything to be heard. Mm. So applying this mechanism, I didn't know, you know, the creative eight was only part of my whole tool, my horror, you know, my whole uh, uh, tool set of how to affect others and my client. But uh, I really got some great results in helping people uh, find their creative self. And from there, you know, we looked at a couple of different things. I wrote, I started writing. I'm a writer for psychology today, and I'm a, a blogger there. And I started uh, really looking at, I, I wrote a really cool article called Global Madness, uh, What We Must Do to Unite that talks about humans as one unit. Um, I wrote another article that uh, was also pretty groundbreaking called, uh, What If Mental Illness Is Just a Conversation? And that article changed some, uh, you know, raised some eyebrows as well. That was, a, I love that article. Um, it's just an article that has a see that oh, we make up these conversations that there's something wrong with people who are unhappy. Mm. Have you looked outside recently? It's okay to be unhappy. If you get it that you're supposed to be happy through this shit, you're missing something. You're not that being happy for every moment. That's just silly. That's just, that's, there's nothing right about that. It's okay to be unhappy. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be confused. And under no conditions, again, people sometimes think that I'm saying, ah, it's in your head, get over it. Not at all. It is in your head. It is in your experience, but don't get over it. Embrace it. This is part of life. It's very painful and it's part of life. Now, more recently, I've uh, created a different technology, and that was through my podcasting. And through that podcasting, I created the Find Your True Voice, the True Voice technology. And my book just came out this week uh, that I'm very excited about. It's called 
uh, find your true voice. Isn't that such a shocking name? Um, so find your true voice book.com. And for your listeners, if, if they go into that site and they want to get my, a copy of my book, there's a free copy waiting for them. I'll be glad to sign it and send it off to your listeners. This is a technology that's really looking at what each of us want more than anything. And that is to not only find our true voice, but to deliver effectively into the world that's waiting and to listen closely to others as they find their true voice. And maybe more than anything, what I said before is what people want more than anything is to be heard. Mm. That's it. If, if a person can be heard for who they are, even one time in their life, their whole world changes. I learned that when I was there with those kids. I've learned that over and over again with my patients and some of the lonely people in the world who just have never been listened to, that all you have to do, and your therapist uh, audience and your psychologist audience and you yourself know it, all you really have to do is get to the point where your client, your resident, your patient, your customer, whoever you call them, feels heard by you. That's really what it takes. That's it. It's simple. Yeah, we all know it, don't we? It's the, the light bulb moment, you know, where somebody makes eye contact with you for the first time. You might have been seeing them for weeks and you finally um, give them that feeling of being heard. You see it. Yes. Exactly. And I guess um, a, a lot of a lot of people I know who um, listen to the podcast and me myself, we use things like compassion focus therapy in our work. Mm-hmm. And we know that such a huge part of what makes that powerful is this connection piece. Exactly. But in order to connect, you have to be able to express yourself. Exactly. Um, and and I, I hear that that is something that you're helping people to do through yeah. this work. Exactly. So, so how does the podcasting weave into it? Yeah. So that's a relatively recent addition, I'm assuming. Yes, it is. So I be, you know, I'm obviously a natural podcaster, right? Because I've been talking since I arrived on Earth. I came out by babbling, and I was there to be entertaining. And I've always been entertaining. And I told you that none of my teachers have ever forgotten me. And so being a talkative soul and being someone who loves conversation, being a podcaster was a natural for me. And I. I I put together a podcast called Welcome to Humanity, and I had a whole lot of fun interviewing people from all walks of life uh, in the Welcome to Humanity genre. But uh, I began to realize that if I'm going to be a stand for other people to find their voice, podcasting was a really beautiful uh, platform to teach them. And so I began to teach people how to be podcasters from zero to podcaster. And uh, the name of that group is the True Voice Podcasting Mastermind. And just yesterday and the day before, you know, it's a Monday today. And just yesterday and the day before, uh, here we are in the third week of February, I completed what was an amazing, just a completely gorgeous, amazing summit that spotlighted the 25 people who had graduated from the first cohort, people who went from not even knowing what a podcast is to now being world-class podcasters and delivering on their true voice. The summit was absolutely stunning. And all, every single participant who uh, participated in the summit shared with the universe that that which really matters to them in ways that they didn't even know they had access to. And it was absolutely a beautiful experience, uh, one that has me be exhausted for sure, but it was also one that I, I don't know if you've ever put together a summit, but my, my goodness, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. And yeah, I did do one a couple of years ago and I'm still recovering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still recovering. It's so many people and so many things and so many moving parts. And it really went by uh, flawlessly. It was absolutely just super awesome. And there's another cohort is in the, tr- the true voice podcasting mastermind. And then there's a third cohort where we're accepting new people to come into this group and really find their new voice, you know, find their true voice. Uh, we're teaching this course on ongoingly. There's now a course creator who has created an, a video version of it and a virtual version that can be done self-paced and also an ongoing mastermind that supports that with a workbook and with assignments and with a curriculum and a lesson plan and the modules. And the modules are totally aligned with the book I wrote. So that's really cool. It's like, I like that book. I read the book, you know, I had to read the book I wrote eventually. And uh, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. 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 Not everybody does. And I, I got it. It was like the scariest book uh, I'd ever opened. I was like, okay, well, see what I said, you know, and, uh, and I loved it. I really do love the book. It's fun to read. It's easy. It's me. I'm like, oh yeah, I could have said that. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> you 
I did. <laughs> so uh, the book is fun. And, uh, and so now we have this course. And just as of yesterday, we developed another course. And that's for real podcasters, people who already have a podcast, you get to work with my two amazing co-leaders uh, on not only uh, developing a podcast from the ground up, but developing a world class podcast with all the post production bells and whistles, and then distributing it effectively around the world in instantly, you know, in ways that you never thought possible. Both of these co-leaders are so interested in monetizing and making it sustainable and scalable. And if your podcast is struggling in any way, and you need some assistance in that, then true voice broadcasting is the course for you. And uh, True Voice Broadcasting starts in April, and we made an agreement yesterday, me and my two colleagues, to really get started with that. And, with, you know, the response has been overwhelming. People are yeah, podcasters who really want to make sure, you know, everyone loves podcasting, but not everybody is a successful podcaster. And, you know, even if you have great conversations, uh, if you're not making a dollar and, you know, it's taking time out of your very busy day and it's not really getting to the audience that you want it to, then this is a course that you want to take. It's an intensive course where we can, really assist you in bringing that podcast to the level that it deserves to be. And that's who I am these days. Really interesting because, you know, I obviously love podcasting and I do feel like it enables me to connect with people more than some other stuff that I do. So I, I teach quite a lot about ethical marketing. So I, I experiment with all of the marketing channels. I do videos, I do live videos, pre-recorded, all of that stuff. But I feel, and, and I'm a natural writer, I was, you know, born writing probably more than speaking. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel that my podcast is where I get the most intimate conversations with people. I feel like exactly. it's where I do feel like I'm more authentically me on my podcast exactly. than I am exactly. when I'm on video, for example. I, exactly. What is it I, about podcasting that, yeah. that helps people connect with themselves in that way? I think it's a great question. So I had a little course uh, before this thing, this uh, pandemic thing came. And uh, it, the course was called uh, Mastering Telehealth. And I was, I loved, you know, I was going around the world. I spent a lot of time in London I, and I spent a lot of time in Israel and in uh, Europe. And, and uh, I also spent time all over the United States and I was a telepsychiatrist. I was, you know, psychiatry and, and, uh, online communication go together very well, actually, maybe not psychiatry, but the mental health field, because psychiatry is not a field based on communication anymore. You don't even taught how to have therapy when you're a psychiatrist anymore. Really? Mm. Not at all. The residencies do not include how to talk to a patient. The residencies are all about, you know, biological interventions. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I know them all. I'm really good at it. Screw them. They don't, they, they make things worse. And I got really good at it in the meantime. But anyways, I never, I, I diverge. But here, here's the point. So, you know, as a telehealth provider, what I like to think is there's this massive disinhibition that happens online. Here I am alone in my basement in my, you know, if you looked over, there's my cat right there. One of my, I love my cats. I have three beautiful cats, but there's Valentino because he's my guardian and he's sitting right up there on my on my little futon here, just listening to every word I say. And there I am having a conversation with you with my cat and my tea and the outdoors of my own familiar home being not only my backdrop, but the world that I'm living in as I have these conversations. The more familiar and the more comfortable I can be in my environment and not have to be in the, even the same room as you. Because when I'm in the same room as you, I'm sizing you up, you're sizing me up. We wanna make sure we're not you know, that we look okay, that are this and that we spend so much time jimmying and jamming to make sure that we're that we're okay when we're in the same room. That's not the case in podcasting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's five o'clock in the morning here. I actually have my pajama bottoms on. No way. The, Gosh, you know, that's dedication. I didn't realize it's lunchtime yeah, for me. If listeners yeah, are interested. yeah. You know, I have a, I have a sports shirt on, but I, I do have pajama bottoms because when we're done with this conversation, I'm going back to rest, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I'm going right back to rest. I, I have I, I but in podcasting, what's here is the live nature of people who are eager to share ideas is what's exploited. And when we have that, not only are we disinhibited, we also here's the other thing. We have been looking at TV since the day we were born. We, we, so many of us know TV. So now we get to actually look at TV while we're doing this. 
And we forget that the TV knows how to look at us too. So when I raise my eyebrows, we're not programmed to see how you, how well you can see me. I forget. I'm just talking to you. Like I'm talking to a TV. I'm figuring you don't even have, you can't see me. I, I don't really have it that you can see me as well as you do, because we're not programmed to think that a TV can look at us. We are programmed to think that a person can look at us. So in, in uh, podcasting, we're never, we're frequently not really physically with the people who are interviewing. So that disinhibition concept really grows and we're able to communicate openly and effectively in ways that far exceed anything we might've done had we been together in the same room. And, you know, I used to say, and I don't know if this is what you were just pointing to, this was when I was a telepsychiatrist. I know I call myself a, con, a, a recovering psychiatrist now. Um, is that uh, if I had the choice of being with a patient in the same room or putting them in the next room on a computer and having a podcast with them, there's no question I would put them in the next room on a computer and have a podcast with them. That's where the communication is cleaner. It's way cleaner than being even in the same room as somebody for the purpose of mental health exchanges. That is so interesting. When I think back to the beginning of the pandemic and how scared a lot of people were about having to move their um, psychology and therapy practices online, I think it's a drastically different way of thinking about it to where we were at back then as a professional group. And I wonder how people feel about it now, how many people might agree with you now who would have yeah. very much disagreed a couple of years ago. Because exactly. I remember I've, I've been um, practicing online for about five years and um, because I'm a military spouse. So we move every 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had clients who I was still seeing while we were moving, they'd have to switch online anyway. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I suppose I was an early convert. And I have mm -hmm. noticed that effect that you were talking about, that kind of um, disinhibition or comfort that you get from your own environment that maybe allows you to extend your window of tolerance a exactly. little bit and I, I find that to be helpful although of course it has its downsides too um, and we need to think about some of those but I, I think I realized early from being forced into it that that was a bonus for people yes. but I never thought about podcasting I never made that connection with how podcasting could be used therapeutically in that way yes I think exactly. it sounds really exciting so how yeah. do people usually react when you um present it to them people who are maybe struggling it's interesting I I think early on um you know when when it was an option people would think not everybody thought it was such a great idea you know some people thought that they were missing the human connection if they uh would do it online and so some people balked at that, but now it's the gold standard. You know, when I was being trained, if someone would be standing here, if I could walk into a room and I would see someone talking to a screen, immediate hospitalization. <laughs> yes, I can, I can imagine instant, that. <laughs> in, instant, instant, wouldn't even have to ask any more questions. I, really, I would not have to do a mental status exam. That's all we needed. Thank you very much. You're talking to a screen, you're coming in. These days, if you're not talking to a screen, you might get hospitalized. Mm, we are all we are all set up to look at these pixelated flat screens and talk to them as if we're in a communication relationship. So what people think is gone through such a 180, a massive turnaround, like some people are like, you know, people who, you know, you get zoom fatigue or whatever the new diagnosis is going to be about that. And, um, you know, you, you, you get tired. And of course, I get tired of, of uh, staring at pixelated flat screens. But the truth is, it's all we have at this point to have communication. And not only is it all we have, it's not desperate. Let's face it, me and you are having a supreme, a supreme real time conversation right now. We are a good six or 7000 miles away from each other. The it is a pure communication. I can see the color of your beautiful eyes. I see every little nuance while you make it. I listen to everything as you're saying it. There's no delay whatsoever between when your mouth moves and the words coming out of your mouth. You know, even in a big stadium, 
when an event takes place and I'm sitting up in the in the blue in nosebleed seats, there's a few seconds between when the events takes place and when I hear it. But in this technology, boom, boom, everything is still so pure. So the technology grew while we weren't looking to be so effective that we actually are under the illusion that we're in a real time conversation, even though the two of us are nearly half of a world apart. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it really is. So have you had any challenges with getting this approach off the ground? Or was it well received from the beginning? Oh, you know, there's, I don't know, I, I, it isn't like I'm trying to turn around people who I, I, you know, the hardest group is actually probably psychiatrists themselves, or, um, you know, we are a great bunch, you know, we've, we've been trained at the top of the totem pole. And, diagnosing and medicating are, are what we do. And, you know, I love my psychiatrist friends. It's fine. It's, they can keep doing what they're doing. It's all good. If that's what they feel is really helping. Um, so no, there, there's a little bit of pushback, uh, this idea, you know, I think that's why I want to underline to the patients and to your therapist, um, listenership. Some people think what I'm saying is something like, not only are you not sick, but like the whole thing is made up. And in some ways it is made up, it's true. But what really is also true is maybe you're not sick. Maybe this is what it is to be totally confused about what it means to be human and having no idea what your next step is going to take you into. Even the best therapist, the best psychologist, Sigmund Freud, for God's sake, Carl Jung, whoever you're going to name, they had, they had no idea what their next step was going to bring them to. We all pretend that we're like supposed to be comfortable with this shit. I, what? You, what? You, get, you know somebody who's comfortable with this shit? Like, really? No, you don't. That person's lying. That person is lying. There's no way that someone's looking at all this and is just naturally comfortable with this shit. Sorry, Discomfort is a complete, absolute, fundamental part, a super foundational component of what it is to be human. Let's start from there. Now, when I'm looking at you and I get, I don't care if you're a patient, if you got a big time diagnosis or you're a therapist or you're a psychiatrist or you're a plumber or a homeless uh, vagabond, all good. We're all the same. We're all humans. Welcome to humanity. Really, welcome to humanity. Dig in. The shit sucks sometimes. It way sucks sometimes. And it's flat out incredibly beautiful other times. Totally ecstatically wonderful. That's called humanity. And let's start from there. And we can actually cause some healing from there. So how do you find the, the people that, you know, come on your programs and want to be <clears throat> part of, of this movement, really? Yeah. Well, I think what's happened here is it's kind of infectious, it's kind of engaging, and it's kind of contagious. You know, I'm not going to be surprised if there's some people out there in your listenership having get a little taste of this, are going to give me a ring, give me a ring, gonna be like, I want to be part of this. I get it. My, there's nothing wrong with me, or there's nothing wrong with my patient, or there's nothing wrong with my mom, or there's nothing wrong. And I can, I'm tired of believing that there's something wrong with me. Isn't it refreshing to get Yes, I'm miserable much of the day for whatever reason. Maybe I'm anxious. Uh, if you're not, you know, being anxious, is it, are you serious? There's something wrong with being anxious? Look at this shit. Yeah, and not just the world at the moment, it'd be insane not to be anxious. Exactly. And that's, that's the standard that we're holding is that somehow, you know, they come to us and they're like, oh, I'm anxious. You should just say something like, congratulations. Like, welcome to life. But people don't want to hear that. This is the only field, you know, your therapists, uh, psychologists and, and counselors, and we all know this. This is the only field in all of medicine where if you tell someone they're normal, they get upset with you. There is no other field in all of medicine. You know, you go to, you go find out whether or not you have like, you know, a thyroid abnormality or, or you have cancer or something like that. If someone says, you don't have a thyroid, say, yay. Or someone says, you don't have diabetes, yay. If you have any, you know, you don't have cancer, what? 
But if you come to a psychiatrist or a therapist, there's something wrong with me. And they say, there's nothing wrong with you. You just go find another psychiatrist who can confirm that there's something wrong with you. This is the only field where the right answer is there's something wrong with me. That's just wild. Where the hell did we get off that that would be okay? And there is, look, when there's something wrong with me, when I can get that there's something wrong with me, I'm no longer entirely responsible for the bullshit I'm doing in my life. Like I get to relinquish the responsibility and accountability for being a jerk. Like my wife and I, you know, if I'm having problems with my wife and I can say, you know, honey, uh, I hear you, but uh, it's my ADD kicking in. It's like, no, it's me. I'm a jerk. I'm being a jerk. I can, you know, I, that's part of being human. I can actually turn this around if I just get that it's me and mm -hmm. take responsibility for my life. And that's where I, it's not like I want the end of uh, the mental health uh, assistance field, but the truth is we should be used very sparingly and we should work ourselves out of a job. This is not something that we need to create long-term weekly relationships with our patients that go for years and years so that we can confirm that, screw that. What's here is to get the patient back into uh, really getting their own sovereignty and so that they can be effective with other people. The trump card is, uh, you know, for the creative eight, the trump card is they got those eight things and then there's two more cleaning and uh, photography. And the, the 11th one is uh, help anyone do anything. So being of service, you know, and when we get that, we can, we, we're steady enough in our discomfort, in our dis-ease, in our, uh, uh, in our misery at times to be able to be of assistance to another person, not to show them how not to be miserable. No, it is to share life experiences with another person. Mm -hmm. And when we can do that, like we've already said, that's when that light bulb goes off. That's when healing occurs. Sounds like it's a really empowering approach for, for the people, as you say, who are able to, to hear it and accept or take on that responsibility. I guess I wonder if um, there might be people who, thinking about the ADD example for just running with that, who have been shamed so much mm -hmm. that they're coming to the psychiatrist for a way out of the shame. Yeah. Um, and actually maybe we need to fix that. Maybe if we stop shaming people so much, then they won't need these labels in the way. I, I certainly I, I relate to that experience of sometimes talking to somebody and saying, look, I don't know if you need this label or not. Um, you know, I think maybe you'd be better off without this label. And people actually saying to me, actually, I do need it. I do yeah. need it because uh, it, you know, it stops people having to go at me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It has its value, deep value. And ADD is an excellent example. Look, it's when you look at what we already talked about with the conventional educational system, if you're being told to sit down and shut up and just look at the board, and when I'm done with this, you remember everything I say, you regurgitate it on a piece of paper, the closer you get to what I say, uh, you, the, uh, and when you, on, on what you turn in, yay for you, you're a good student, we will pass you into the next level. Mm -hmm. And that's what conventional education is really in all of Western Europe and all, all frankly, the whole world. Uh, maybe it's a little bit different in Asia and the, and then we get like, oh yeah, I have a scattered mind. I'm more interested in moving pieces and, you know, I'm more interested in shiny objects. I'm more interested in things that are exciting for me than I am in uh, paying attention to shit that's completely boring. So, oh, I must have a condition. Yeah, I must be I weirdo because I'm not I interested in this incredibly boring lesson. Yeah. Exactly. There must be something wrong with me that I don't complete tasks that have no actual value to complete ever anyways. There must be something wrong with me. So then we do pick off that diagnosis. Now, the thing about the ADD diagnosis, and you know, that's these days, there's never been a condition that people want more than ADD. Never. I got ADD. Uh, people are like, I got ADD. It's my ADD kicking in. There's no, you know, there's no shame. There's no concern. It's fine. And uh, the medications, you know, the stimulants, unfortunately, they not only sort of give us a surge of uh, relief because they allow us to focus down, you know, some of the uh, stimulant medications, Adderall and Ritalin and even, even coffee for God's sakes. Um, uh, and, but the Vyvanse and the amphetamines, 
you know, not so far away from methamphetamine after all, but that's, so we pretend that they are two different drugs when in fact they're pretty similar drugs. Methamphetamine. I just read, I just read a book chapter in uh, Johan Hari's Stolen Focus about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, read it, people. If you listen to yeah. this, go and look that up, read it. It is a bit alarming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> amphetamine is amphetamine. And, and, you know, we, when we were growing up, it was speed kills. Well, here's the thing. Um, these medications actually often cause the symptoms that they're marketed to treat along with giving it relief. So they do both, you know, potato chips sort of, sort of will quell your hunger for a moment, but they don't stop you from being hungry. You know, you, you can have a whole bag of potato chips and yum, yum, yum. I love, don't get me started on potato chips. I could have a whole podcast on potato chips. I love <laughs> potato chips. I'm me serious. Too. Oh my goodness. And but, you know, to suggest that potato chips is satiating food is not, it's not. Potato chips keep you more hungry. Now, imagine that 100 times deep with the ADG medicines, those medicines and that diagnosis actually absolutely perpetuates itself. Mm -hmm. So that's why the doses go up, you know, year after year. And basically the medicines, you know, we say when we're coming in a withdrawal or something like that is two times a day or three times a day or long acting or whatever those medicines cause a scattering that's actually worse than what you came in with. And you think it's because your condition got worse when really what happened is those medications spread out your receptor sites and created the confusion and the, uh, you know, the uh, scatteredness uh, that now has you needing to take the same medicines to actually fix that, which is causing the medicine, the problem. Wow. Now, how would I think that? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a pretty big, big claim. If you had a model where a particular medicine was actually contributing to or causing the symptoms it's marketed to treat, that would be a good model, right? I mean, that would be a pretty good business model. I mean, you know, you, it would be like maybe a profitable model. It would make millions or maybe even billions of dollars a day if we could do that. Oh, it does. Mm -hmm. It makes billions of dollars a day. That model makes billions of dollars a day in the ADD industry. It's not like it's evil. It's just the way it's set up. Yeah, well, it might be a little bit evil, but maybe nobody set out with evil intent. We could, <laughs> we could say that. It, it might be more than evil, but the thing is, it's not like you can point at the insurance or the medicine or the doctor or it's not. The system is set up. I really, you know, from 2006 forward, I used to point fingers and I used to think, oh yeah, it's big pharma or it's doctors untrained or it's, you know, uh, the mental health system or something like that. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to pretend that because it's evil, they did something wrong to us. Not, it's not helpful. Hmm. What is helpful is walking with our clients or ourselves for those of us who, you know, some of us are, are walking around with this diagnosis and getting that no one actually, in most cases, no one is holding you down every morning and telling you to put that pill in your mouth. You're doing it because someone told you to do it. And then you're pretending that because they told you to do it, that's why you're doing it. The reason you're putting that pill in your mouth is because you're putting that pill in your mouth. That's it. Yeah, who You listen to everyone? No, you don't. If someone told you to eat rat poison, you probably wouldn't do that in the morning. But there's something like you agreed to do that. And of course, it does have a dependency producing quality. So these are medicines that uh, really do create a surge of, uh, you know, like a surge in some ways of euphoria or some ways of um, wanting and looking for that next boost. Uh, um, sort of like coffee addiction, you know, mm. we think we think coffee addiction is, you know, man, I'm not addicted. I just drink a cup every single day for the rest of my life. Well, Okay, you want to say you're not addicted? That's okay, but uh, that's called addiction. You know, I, 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 you know, you call what you want. Yeah, I only drink one cup once a day. Okay, well, you know, and it causes a dependency. And in this case, and even with coffee, for God's sake, it does cause, uh, often causes a scattering that then has you need that next cup of coffee to take care of the problem that actually coffee caused in the first place. So it's fascinating and really alarming. And I think I like I like the fact that what you're offering to people as a qualified, you know, medical doctor, as a psychiatrist, you're offering them a, a totally different way of looking at themselves and a, and a different approach, which mm -hmm. I think aligns with a lot of 
um, the, the way that psychologists and, and therapists in the UK might work. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I think one difference is psychologists in the UK don't do medication um, at all. Either. And we yeah. often don't work with the diagnostic framework, which means that we get seen as a bit fringe. Yeah. Um, but I think you've got a really powerful platform as somebody who understands all that brain chemistry stuff, who understands what these drugs are doing to take that message out to people in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really inspirational, the work that you're doing. Thank so you. I know, um, firstly, I want to thank you for your time, but I know that a lot of people listening to this are going to want to connect with you. So I'll put all of your links in the show notes, but where is the best place for somebody to come in and follow what you do? Yeah. So, you know, welcome to humanity.net is a, is being uh, redeveloped again. So that's my website, Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net, Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net is one way to get a hold of me by email. And then uh, this new book has a cool landing page to this find your, uh, find your true voice book.com uh, where, where you can get a copy of my book and take a look at it. And if it's something that's interested to you, interesting to you, we can have a conversation. Um, <clears throat> And then look for me in the True Voice community on uh, Facebook, and that's being developed in uh, a couple of the social media sites, perhaps on uh, LinkedIn as well, as we create a small group of uh, really people who are interested and ready to share their voices and to have uh, the capacity to hear other people as well uh, from a space of empowerment, from a space of actually listening for people's greatness, from a space of healing rather than being doctors. Uh, most of us are uh, have gotten off the train a little bit and we're living a duplicitous life, living a life where we're doing something or lots of things that are inconsistent with who we know ourselves to be. And uh, life is short and this might be a good time to stop doing that and start living aligned. Fantastic. And on that note, I will say thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. Do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that will bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? (laughs) I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something big when setting up my insurance or data protection. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases. It's hard, no, probably impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you've got a secure business underneath you. But it can be overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you've got everything in place for your security and theirs. Download it now from psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash client hyphen checklist. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy. Therapy.